What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Trust the History of Fashion as a production of iHeartRadio. eight billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Africa fashion means the past, the future, and the present at the same time. The joy of life and the joy of color is completely different and very particular to the continent. It's a language of heritage. It's a language of DNA. It's a language of memories. So this quote is by the Moroccan-based fashion designer Artsy, and it speaks to the language, the threads have you, that distinguish and connect African fashion designers to their histories, cultures, and to one another. And this quote and Artsy's work with his label Maison Artsy are featured in the landmark Victoria and Albert exhibition, Africa Fashion, on view until April 16th, 2023. And this exhibition is, of course, something our guest today, Dr. Christine Chakinska, returns to discuss with us in part two of our conversation. Christine is a senior curator at Africa and Diaspora, Textiles and Fashion at the VNA. And on Tuesday's episode, she walked us through the exhibition section by section before discussing the long history of Africa fashion and the politics and poetics of cloth. Today, she is back to continue exploring the exhibition's myriad of themes, which celebrate the vitality, innovation, and history of contemporary African fashion, including the pioneering generation of designers who laid the foundation for its existence. Christine, welcome back to Dressed. Christine, I want to talk to you about how African designers have overwhelmingly been excluded from the quote-unquote traditional fashion history narrative. For instance, part of that narrative does include and celebrate the group of Japanese designers that took Paris by storm in the 1980s, but it excludes the number of important African designers who were making waves there at the exact same time. Can you talk to us about why they have been left out of that history and about your decision to put them back in? You've done us all an incredible service with this exhibition in more ways than one. It's interesting because I probably wouldn't describe current fashion histories as traditional fashion histories. I would sort of name it specifically as Euro-American fashion histories. It's written by Euro-American people. And I think when it comes to African designers or African heritage designers, we have Yves Saint Laurent, we have Azadine Alaya, but somehow they're not necessarily thought of as African, of African heritage by many Euro-American fashion historians, shall we say. So there are Africans within um, these Euro-American fashion histories. And I I don't even think it's um, under-representation. I think it's more around erasure, actually. Because as you rightly say, these designers were there. You know, Yves Saint Laurent was a peer of Al-Fadi. Charlotte Thomas Farm was working at the same time as where Mary Quant, for example, you know, Chris Sejou goes to Paris and is in the Paris fashion scene. And he he knows all of the people there at the time. Kofi Anser, you know, working in London at the same time as many of the designers that we know, we still know. 
So they were there at the time, but I think we have to think about who is writing the fashion histories and therefore what is your worldview? What is your vocabulary like? It's almost as though you're, 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 we're all slightly blinkered, basically. I think all of us, me included, we all think, assess, acknowledge, write about or think about fashion from our own perspectives. That's human nature. But I think those of us in diaspora or those of us of African heritage, particularly those of us of diaspora, I'm going to say, and I'm drawing on Stuart Hall, um, the cultural critic and cultural historian Stuart Hall, who, and this is going to be a slightly clunky paraphrase, but, you know, he pointed out that if you're in diaspora and you're not part of the so-called mainstream, you have to know the mainstream as well as yourself. The mainstream doesn't have to know you. So as we have more diverse voices writing fashion histories, our perspective is naturally broader. We naturally speak and write from a place of a broader we because we've had to know many different cultures. We embody many different cultures. I think that the erasure of African heritage or certain African heritage designers from, uh, from fashion history, it absolutely stems back from our colonial past where Africa is seen or was seen as a place of lack or a place where fashion did not exist, shall we say. It was always thought of as a place, not necessarily of art and design, but more of, you know, the purview of the anthropologist, shall we say. Exactly. And so that's why there has been years of erasure, because as you say, People were rubbing alongside each other and just getting on with the business of designing and producing collections at the time. But it's in the writing of history that certain people are somehow erased. And sometimes it's a deliberate erasure. Sometimes it's an accidental erasure because we all reference what we know when we try to understand the new thing or when we try to understand the world. We always bring our own lenses. And if it's a narrow lens, that is the, the narrowness of the history that we will write. Yeah, and something we do talk about quite a lot on the show and endeavor to show is how, and, and you're absolutely right, how is fashion traditionally written is what I was talking about in terms of traditional fashion histories are very Euro-American centered. They often center white designers and they often center designers working within the Euro-American fashion systems. But something we're always endeavoring to show on dress and something your exhibition, of course, does so brilliantly is expands the narrative around what is fashion what is fashion history and who creates fashion? Because in truth, fashion exists in cultures and in different incarnations all over the world. And such a beautiful, beautiful job you've done showing it here in all of these brilliant, diverse ways. Um, but yeah, these, these, these designers in France and Paris in the 1980s, like Chris Sadu, who was working in the haute couture, I just thought this was such a beautiful section, especially because you go into detail about these designers and you show us each their, their work and how they've created these beautiful signatures and their own unique design aesthetics in these incredible ways. But again, there's also that narrative thread that connects a lot of them and how they interact with clothing and, and the stories they tell through their garments and the way that they gave back to their cultures and their communities is a thread that carries into the contemporary designers as well. Can you talk about a little bit about your experience researching and collecting for this section? Because a lot of what this exhibition was, was 
if I'm not mistaken, you were collecting for the VNA to really start to build up their collection. Mm. And I think the reason there are many reasons why we we would do that. I mean, I've always felt that as a world leading museum of art, design and performance, we absolutely should have a strong representation of African heritage artists, makers, designers, and so on within our collection. So that's really why we're doing it. But I think the beauty of this is the potential for histories to be written in a richer manner because these elements are now within our archives. And I think one of the things I'm always um, really present to is, is making sure that people understand the way that museums operate. So it's not that we're going to grab everything and hold them in our archives. No, it's more making a selection in collaboration with the designers and the creators in the show, going to them and trying to understand what they feel the key pieces are that um, express their aesthetic. So working with them to select those pieces that will be looked after and in the museum for posterity. So if in a hundred years time, someone wants to research Tebe Magugu, they can, and they'll not only see the piece, but they will be able to read his words. They'll be able to hear some of the designer's words where we have recorded conversations with them. So you'll see and hear their interpretation of their work. And I think that's what's been central to this project is to, yes, build up our collection for posterity. So thinking about the future, the future histories and research that can be written, but making sure that the designers' perspectives are included within whatever we collect, whatever we eventually write for our catalogues and our files, making sure that their voices live on beyond them, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you you met and interviewed some of the families of these designers. Um, some of them are still alive, correct? That's right. So Shade Thomas Farm is still alive, still living in Nigeria. So we had some wonderful um, meetings with Shade Thomas Farm and her son Fauzi Farm over Zoom and Teams because and other online platforms were available because of course this is all done during lockdown. And she was fantastic because she, for example, we had tie alongs, we called them in the end, with our conservation team between our conservation team and Shade Thomas Farm, where she taught us how to tie a gele, a head wrap, or she taught us how to tie an iro, which is the wrapper that goes around the waist so that we could get it absolutely right in her eyes for that 60s moment. And so she and her son were very involved in selecting the pieces that are in the case, the pieces that are going into our archives, very particular about which of her central St. Martin's sketchbooks she wanted included in the case. Um, So that was a real joy. And similarly, Al-Fadi is still alive. So we had wonderful, again, online meetings with him what was wonderful was that he was able to come to our press launch. So we finally met him and that was beautiful just to see his reactions, make sure that he was happy with the presentation of his work. And um, online, you can see two fabulous um, videos that we created. They're in the show, but you can access them through the VNA website where you get to hear them talking about their careers, talking about their views of fashion. You get to see them in their studios and at work. So it's really wonderful to be able to add that to the body of knowledge around their practices, actually. And that's accessible for free online. You can just log on and find those interviews. So that's a real joy to have been able to meet them. And similarly, James Barner, the photographer, 
very much still alive. <laughs> we had fabulous conversations with James Barner talking about his work. And again, if you go to the VA website, you can find interviews with the photographer James Barner. So it's been a real joy to be able to meet people of that um, generation and to really honour them and to give them the platform to speak about their work in their own words and, you know, to include them in a show that's about contemporary, largely about contemporary fashion. So the com- contemporary floor is bigger. It's wonderful to include them in that and see their work alongside the contemporary practitioners. Yeah, I mean, that has to be one of the great joys of your job is meeting these designers and being able to meet the people who created the garments that you're featuring, because obviously as a curator, that's not always a gift that you have. Some people leave no information behind. Some people leave leave more, I guess, but to, it's one thing to read about it and another to meet them in person. So that's really special. Absolutely. And, and it's enabled us to update our um archives as well, the notes in our archives. So when it comes to textiles, for example, we worked really closely with um, the academic John Pipton, and he was able to sort of tell us about the fabrics and similarly Shadi Thomas Farm telling us about the Adore. So even with our existing collection or the collection that we had before Africa Fashion, we've been able to reanimate that and to, you know, name the weaver of a particular kente, to name a particular design, because prior to doing the research for Africa fashion, some of the catalogue entries of the textiles that we collected in the 60s were really quite um, scanned. And so it's been this kind of dual process of looking back at what we already have, trying to tell richer, deeper stories about that, and then collecting the new materials from the contemporary designers and the mid-20th century designers. Yeah, I was going to say, of course, that the VNA has, I'm sure, a rich and varied Africa collection, but maybe how they've used that collection and how they've considered and critically considered that collection in the past, um, like you said, I think reanimate is an excellent word, um, kind of bringing it into a much more expansive and enriched narrative that centers African people and African self-expression. So we've talked about connecting threads a lot. And again, that's one of those threads that runs through the exhibition um, are the ways in which designers that came into their own in the post-liberation era, a lot of the groundwork they laid is still being followed by the designers that you feature in the 21st century contemporary scene and how they approach design, their philosophy fees, um, many of them leaving their communities and studying elsewhere and then returning, supporting their communities by basing their brands there and hiring local artisans is another thread. And then mentorship and not losing sight of their cultural heritage and then broadcasting it to the world as a practice of cultural uplift are all things that connect the contemporary designers with those designers who laid that foundation. Can you talk a little bit more about the role of community and a lot of these designers' works? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because often in the global north, when we hear the, the word community, it, it conjures up a very specific thing. Whereas I think on the continent, particularly for the creators in the show, there is this sense of Sankofa, which we talk about in the book, this idea of giving back or looking back in order to go forward. Maybe the two things really is a great way of describing it. And many of the designers kind of adopt that because culturally that's part of everyday life. You don't just go forward without um, bringing others with you. So this sense of collective power is in the air. You don't just go forward by forgetting the past. You somehow 
reference the past in order to go forward. So designers like Awa Mete spring to mind and the work that she does. So Awa's work, it's a real sort of celebration of cotton um, and also hand dyeing, I would say. There's a wonderful article actually about her in the Crafts Council magazine that uh, speaks about her practice. And she's in the book and in, the sh in our show. But she works with local um, female artisans sharing traditional textile techniques, but also nudging nudging those techniques forward to inputting new um, ideas. So there's this wonderful, almost Sankofa element to her work that's all around a celebration of cotton and natural hand dyeing to produce these wonderful couture pieces. So I think many of um, the designers have that slant to them. Lagos Space Programme, who I mentioned earlier with the Adore, almost an apprentice of Macchio, the designer, were also working in um, Adore. And she herself is an, was an apprentice to Chief Nike. So you get this kind of sense of three generations all working with Adore, with indigo dyeing, with this resist indigo dyeing, nudging it forward. So it's constantly changing, but it's honoring those past techniques. So I think there is that sort of common thread and there is a kind of a desire by many of the creatives in the show, I'm thinking about Enquo for her brand, who I had a wonderful conversation with her where she was saying, well, she's really happy to and very and feels satisfied. She's international. I mean, she's huge, she's international. But from her point of view, she's really happy that she has a local market and she wants to service the local market. And so she, you know, she typically uses recycled denim. So she's known for her Dakala cloth, this contemporary strip weave cotton that's made from recycled denim. Or you have someone like Sarah Dioff at Tongaro who makes um, limited edition collections so there's no waste. And she'll use end of runs, end of print runs. So there's a natural kind of end or this natural limit to the size of her collections. And again, she's happy to service the international market as well as the local market, but she works with local tailors. So sustainability, there's a, there isn't a set sustainability section in the exhibition, deliberately so, because all of the creatives, sustainability is ground zero. And I think it's rooted, it's rooted in this kind of Sankofa idea. And so there is this sense of sustainability starting with people, people, skills, environment, materials. And those are the kind of building blocks for many of the, the creatives in the show. That's the building blocks for many of their collections. But you also see that with the industry leads, whether that's Nisha Kanabar at Industry Africa, um, who is, you know, Industry Africa is featured in the show in the Global Africa Digital Platform section. And Nisha's, um, Nisha in a sense is an e-tailer, but she's an e-tailer with a big, big difference. So you go on Industry Africa and it's a cultural hub. It's not just there to to sell the latest fashionable look from Tonga or whoever. It's really there to connect the designers themselves. And so there's a sort of a mentoring aspect. So there's a connecting the designers to each other. There's a mentoring of the designers that happens there, but also through Omiyemi Akirel. There's a mentorship that she's uh, very wedded to. And then it's also about educating the customers or the clients. And so, this is what I love about the scene on the continent is they really are 
the creators, whether it's the designers, the photographers, the filmmakers, or the industry leads, they're really stretching the boundaries or pulling apart the boundaries, rewriting what fashion practice looks like. You know, so an e-tailer is actually a cultural hub. A designer like Boo Boo or Gisi is not just a designer, she has her fiber art side, she has her film side. Tebe Magugu has the magazines. I love that about this kind of usefulness, this prioritization of creativity. So you have creativity and sustainability, I think, as the bedrock of what we see on the continent. And I think for me, that's what gives it its allure. And that's what I think that the rest of the world can somehow learn from the contemporary African fashion scene. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think think in that language, which is incredible, you learn by immersion. And their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation. So you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. The contemporary fashion world has so much to learn from these designers because they're really reminding you of why fashion matters, what, you know, those beautiful elements that are so often lost in the fast fashion industry, reminding people who makes their clothing, what goes into the making of their clothing. And then once you start considering all of those elements, you know, it really makes you value what you wear in a completely different way that's been so lost in our fast fashion world. And all of these designers kind of bring you back into that and really exciting 
beautiful ways because you open this exhibition catalog and it's just one page after another of just the most stunning, inspiring designs. And it's such a beautiful testament to that. And I think the other thing, thinking about this idea of looking back to go forward, one of the beautiful moments that will really stay with me, because whilst the contemporary floor, it's, it's kind of bang up today and it's largely kind of quite useful designers, but we also have more established designers like Patience Tallaway upon the contemporary floor. And there was a beautiful moment where I think it was um, the photographer Stephen Tayo. I'm not sure, but one of the contemporary creatives didn't realise that Patience Tallaway was in the show. And they were all, a few of them, about 10 people, 10 of the creators came for the press launch and we had a reception for them all. And when they met Patience Tallaway, it was wonderful to witness because there was a real sense of honouring someone that's been in the industry for longer, that has, you know, to the naked eye, quite a classic look, but in her work is all about empowering women. So her piece is up in the Afrotopia section because it's a political commentary on um, feminism and the feminine, even though at first glance it seems quite classical. But there was a wonderful kind of honouring of someone who's been in the industry for much longer as an established designer. And so I think there is this real sense of honouring people, whether it's the person that makes the garment for you or the designer that's been in the industry longer than you and that you might be able to learn from or exchange ideas with. So there was a real beauty to that, which I think I feel, having come through the British fashion system, I feel is missing or was missing or something I certainly hadn't witnessed until that moment working on Africa fashion. Yeah, and that leads me to my last question. Thank you so much for being here and sharing insights and kind of taking us behind the scenes of this exhibition. For those of us who cannot get there in person, what do you hope people will take away from this exhibition? And what do you hope to see moving forward now that you've put this out into the world? I hope, um, or we, everyone that's worked on the project, hopes that people will catch a glimpse of the um, the magnificence, I'm going to say, of African creativity. I did a tour earlier this morning of the exhibition and someone stopped me and said, but this exhibition is actually about life, isn't it? It's not just about fashion. I said, yes, you're absolutely right. So I want people to come away with a glimpse of the creativity, the unbounding creativity on the continent. And I want people to go away and explore further and respectfully engage with the African fashion scene, but also African creativity more broadly. And I really see, and we all see Africa fashion as a starting point of this next phase, an institution of consciously engaging with African creativity, of consciously foregrounding multiple and varied African voices and perspectives across all of the exhibitions and events that we do. So we really see this as a blueprint or a starting point for future projects. So that that's something that really excites me. Yeah, I have to say, I am so excited to see what you do next, um, what stories you will tell and share with us, because you've done such an excellent job with this one. Christine, thank you so much for being here. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you.
Christine, this has been a distinct pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to us and taking us all on this beautiful journey into the vibrant worlds and rich histories of Africa fashion. Dress listeners, you have until April 16th, 2023 to get to London to see the exhibition for yourself in person. And if you can't make it in person, don't forget there is a wonderful accompanying catalog of the same name, Africa Fashion. And uh, the exhibition also has an incredible website, which is chock full of fascinating articles and videos relating to all the various themes presented in the exhibition. Yeah, I mean, this is such an incredible website, I have to say. It includes interviews with some of the pioneering designers featured in the exhibit, such as the Mali designer Al-Fadi, the quote-unquote magician of the desert. And something else that is really cool is that they have a lot of upcoming online and in-person conversations, lectures, and workshops, and even classes that you can take. And I am personally very excited to sign up for the course Fashioning Global Africa 1900 to Now, which is 12 hours of lectures over six weeks. And it's led by Christine herself and the project curator of the exhibition, Elizabeth Murray. So, you know, and it goes without saying, we are just so excited to follow Christine's work at the VNA well into the future. Well, Cass, maybe she will consider joining us again for her next exhibition. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) That does it for us today, dress listeners. And on that note, may you ponder the incredible beauty, language, and legacy of African fashion next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you would like to write to us, you can email us at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you'll find images and reels accompanying each week's episodes. And listeners, you've asked and we have listened. If you want to find the Instagram content that is connected to a very specific episode, what we're going to start doing is we're going to start adding hashtags so you can search the hashtag for a particular episode um, and then it'll come right up. So uh, the hashtags for this two-part episode are hashtag dressed 290 and hashtag dressed 291. That's dressed followed by the numbers 290 or 291, which are the episode numbers. Yeah, and unfortunately, we can't go back to our, you know, 289 episodes prior to add these hashtags because that would take a very long time. But moving forward well into the future, we are going to do this for you because you have asked for it repeatedly. And until now, we haven't been able to figure it out. So at the end of every episode, we'll, we'll tell you what the episode number is. And we just want to clarify here that um, we, we make a little bit of a distinction when we do fashion history mystery episodes or mini-sodes. So when you, we're giving you an episode number, it's the full-length episode that we're, we're doing. And so the, the mini-sodes in the fashion history mysteries might have a little bit of a different numbering system, just, just to be clear. Yes, exactly. So if you're wondering why <laughs> it suddenly goes from 254 to or 291 and then suddenly next week's 54 or something, that's why. But uh, <laughs> we'll figure this out together hopefully it's not too confusing so until next week dress listeners if you have a moment and want to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice we appreciate your support and as always special thanks to our producers casey pagram holly fry and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week more dress coming your way on thursday Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.